Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events. Details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. If the platform that you use allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the info out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. And I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. I'm a little sick today, though. Oh. Oh, yeah. I got the sniffling, so my apologies to everybody who's listening. (laughs) So hear this cheese grater of a voice. Oh, Lord. I already said sorry once. I like it. We're off to a great start. John called and I'm going to be saying sorry a lot, and he's probably not wrong. (laughs) We also have John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and the lead instructor of our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. What's up, John? Not much, man. I'm excited for tonight. This should be a good little discussion. Yeah, so we're going to do something that we haven't done before. So we've done a lot of formats in the show. We've had guests, obviously. We've had just us three kind of talking about certain topics, like our, our Barbell Athlete podcast we had recently. We've done Q&As. And today, on this episode, we're going to do a case study. So John is going to present to us a real-life case from the clinic, and we're going to talk about it. So, John, what do you got? So I picked this one because when I hear shows like this, they always end like a fairy tale, right? So it's always, we did this, and then everything was great, and everybody moved on. And that's not really the case with this one. It's actually still an ongoing thing um, that we're still managing. And I, I like people to understand that that's actually normal. So the athlete is a young, we're talking uh, early 30s, type 1 diabetic female who is a competitive powerlifter. Uh, has been doing it for a few years. And when she originally started working with me, she had already had kind of a on and off anterior hip pain type stuff. Really nondescript, uh, would, would definitely start to talk to her a little bit more during higher intensity blocks of training. No range of motion limitations to speak of. Uh, honestly, for a powerlifter, she probably squats way deeper than is necessary for, for the standard. Um, no isolated strength, like manual muscle testing is fine. Um, no real decrease in performance. The big issue is, is when she goes into full depth of a squat, that's when she gets pain and that pain eventually becomes very limiting. And, uh, once that happens, 
apprehension sets in and we see a decrease in performance. Um, when it came to physical presentation of performance, there were times in a back squat, in a competition back squat, where 135 would be painful from a female that's capable of a 315, 320-pound squat. Um, so very strong girl. The interesting part about the case was 135 all the way up to 265 would not actually increase that. It would just be stated that it wasn't really tolerable still, um, and it would increase apprehension and, and make make things a little bit more dicey. Um, front squatting, on the other hand, is completely pain-free, regardless of the range of motion. Um, some social factors. She has a very high-pressure job, very high-octane job. Uh, one of the things, and, and you know, we can discuss the interaction of this, uh, but one of the things that she went through on this most recent flare-up was a couple things. A, uh, we were very close to a meet. We were about a month and a half out from a competition that she was prepping for, so we were in a relatively high-intensity block. But she also had to lay off a large number of staff by herself. Um, which was an incredibly stressful situation. And uh, her mom and dad were building a house and moved in with her for <laughs> about a month, month and a half, two months, I believe it was. Um, and all these kind of culminated in what she presented with, which was always with squatting, uh, regardless of, of really range of motion, always back squatting, limiting pain. So what are your guys' thoughts initially here? Or do you have any follow-up questions for me presentation-wise? When did it start? How long has yeah. it been going on? Uh, on and off, it's been going on. Her full history was about four years. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, on and off, just especially during high-intensity blocks. But this most recent was a month and a half out from September 1st much difference in terms of like stance widths or foot positions does that change much none okay so you weren't working with her four years ago is that right correct and there was no inciting event it just insidious onset hip pain four years ago probably hard to remember exactly what it's a long time on and off for the last four years what's the last six months been like is it i mean what's her what's the pattern of flare-up like is it does it happen every other month that she has these little setbacks or or is it less frequent than that it's less frequent with that actually um i started with her it's probably been about eight months now maybe a little bit longer um and we got through an entire training block and prep and she had a huge pr and a meet with no issues um that was virginia state championship so that was about four months ago uh and it really just recently kind of reared its head uh, a month and a half before this most recent competition. Prior to that, we had worked our way out of it uh, with a lot of success, limiting range of motion and, and that sort of thing, um, and just trying to build some success. Before that, it had flared up a little bit more frequently, about once every three to four months. She said it would it would limit training, um, and that's – her biggest frustration when she first came to me was that she just wanted to get through a training block healthy. Mm -hmm. 
Aside from squatting, forgive me if you mentioned this, were there any other ways that you could provoke the symptoms? None. Deadlifting was fine. Uh, sumo deadlifting, she's not a sumo deadlifter. Uh, she's pretty much always done conventional. So sumo deadlifting would trigger some symptoms, but I found that more relatable to the fact that she just wasn't comfortable in that position. If you put her on blocks, she was fine. Um, bench, no real other movements elicited those symptoms. Okay, so we've got – she's coming to you. She's already got a three-year-plus history of this thing. You knew about it when you started working with her? And she yes. told you. Okay. Was she in the midst of a flare-up when you started working with her? Yes. How did you guys manage that specifically? Did you, Were you full squatting? So when she came to you over that first initial block, okay, I'm in hip – she's in pain. She's got this history. What did the modifications look like? Was it all partial range of motion or, or did you work into some stuff? I started, so we were squatting twice a week when I first started with her. The first day was a tempo back squat to tolerance, nice and slow through as, as much of a tolerable range of motion. She was actually able to do full range of motion with a, with a tempo uh, very successfully. And the other one was pin squats. Um, with a slightly elevated heel and was asymptomatic with that as well. Uh, we were able to push those two movements until we could do a competition squat, uh, pain-free or one out of 10 pain, which was completely tolerable and, and something she was willing to accept. Uh, another thing I probably should mention is she never really complained about like popping or, or snapping or uh, any audible type of presentation her leg never gave out on her it never really bothered her outside of the gym um it was always just all the way in the hole squatting doesn't lock or anything like that no nothing like that does she squat in flats or heels usually uh low heels okay like the reebok power lifts mm -hmm. wait hold on uh quick logistical thing john are you hitting your cord i might be yeah jared do you hear that i do it's like a rustling Got it. Okay. It might be, uh, <clears throat> could be your beard. <laughs> okay. I think it's fixed now. The magic. Okay. So <laughs> I'm starting to get a picture here. So you've got, you started working with her eight months ago. She already had a three year history of this. Both hips or just one? Just one. Which one? Not that it matters. Just so I can get the picture. Okay. Left hip. No, no acute inciting event. Just kind of came on probably from a, training that she was just not recovering from it's off and on she sees you it's it's on you reduce range of motion for one variation you go super super slow and you load to tolerance and and find whatever her range of motion threshold is going to be symptoms start to calm down pretty soon you're able to marry full range of motion with load where she's now tolerating pretty much training normally for how many months then? Oh, we were, we were on a roll for probably, what's that? Six and a half months. Okay. Six months. So six and a half months. Symptoms are manageable. She's totally fine. If she was in this set, this amount of, of discomfort in her hip for the rest of her career, she'd probably be like, awesome. Yeah. She I'm, would love I'm golden. Okay. What, 
What changed in that six-month period in the program? Did anything start to shift towards competition in regards to intensity or, or variation or anything like that? We experimented a little bit with some different stances, but they weren't necessarily aggravating. What really ramped up was a lot of the intensity preparing for that meet, um, but still not not out of the ordinary. She was relatively used to uh, higher intensity training to begin with. Um, so she had built a pretty good tolerance to that already. All that that life stuff that you were talking about with the job and all that stuff, when, when did she start voicing that to you? Immediately. Immediately when? when yeah, yeah uh, right around when the symptoms really started to kind of crop up. Do you know if uh, if she mentioned anything about sleep or or food? Did her did her diet change during that time? Well, the running joke. Uh, so this is going to be a small small caveat. Um, I've had the the wonderful opportunity to work with uh, a good amount of type one diabetics through Bolus and Barbells. It's a education and uh, physical fitness. I don't want to say company, but um, that works with type one diabetics. And she's actually one of the board members for that. Um, so we always laugh about nutrition and stuff because I have a functioning pancreas and she doesn't. So she always makes fun. Um, and it's, I think being a type one diabetic and one thing that a lot of people don't understand is the level of stress that that kind of constantly brings in regards to management. Um, you know, she's got a Dexcom, she's got the the digital monitors and stuff, but it, you, you can wake up in the middle of the night and that thing could be malfunctioning and you've got a real problem on your hands. Um, so sleep has always been, for her, it's been relatively good, but she al you always have that kind of looming over you in regards to her own kind of lifestyle. Now, we can discuss whether, you know, chronic stress like that is something that you adapt to, but it does add a layer of you know, kind of constant stress or uh, something to be concerned about at all times. She does manage it incredibly well, um, but her nutrition is is what you would expect from a competitive athlete who manages type one diabetes successfully. Well, where my mind goes with something like that is not to not to discount anything that you that you said there. Because that's all, that's all true. I'm not a type 1 diabetic, but I do have friends who are that are athletes. And, and it's, it's pretty incredible the way that they are able to manage that. But the, yeah. but the way that my brain works is like that is – that's been her norm. Yeah. And so, she, you know, even that six months when you guys were training, everything was going well. She was a type 1 diabetic. Yeah. Now, unless – Unless there was some acute mismanagement or like the her, uh, you know, equipment malfunctions all of a sudden that she wasn't expecting and that was that was violating her sleep. But I'm wondering if what did she mention anything about sleep being affected from the job stress? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so you know that's a player that you know if we if we if we kind of stop talking about that part and just start diving into the physical aspect of things i think hopefully the everybody just understands that that's a that's playing a factor here that's tough to measure but if you if you have the same you have the same body you have the same training but then all of a sudden something else 
creates a bolus of stress that now it adds to your bucket, whether it's actually training or not, you know, that counts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lesson for people just listening there. You know, what do you do about it? Find a new job. Don't, <laughs> don't fire the people that you're supposed to fire that, you know, you can't do anything about it necessarily, but you can at least acknowledge that, that it's a factor. And so maybe for her, for some people, maybe they're looking for this internal cause. Like, why does my hip hurt? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my glutes not firing or something like that? Or you can take a more global approach and just say, you know what? I'm kind of overflowed right now, just in general. You know, I'm, I'm, beyond, I'm beyond capacity. And the, the hip stuff, you know, <laughs> she's, she's had it for four years. And the longer something stays around like that and it, and it keeps popping up and it goes away it pops up again just the more apt it is to to pop up again like this may be something that that she deals with off and on throughout her lifting career to to one degree or another um and so you know that's probably an important point important point to have a, a discussion point with her right there is that you know curing this where it's just gone forever and it, and it never happens again um you know that may be grabbing at straws too but i'll stop there i want to jump in real quick and uh toss a question to both of you before i do that though question for you john did you and your athlete have a conversation like this and just sort of try to set or adjust expectations based on those like global life things that were going on in the midst of all that very much so. That was actually one of the largest conversations and ongoing conversations that we've had is to manage those expectations. And she's been very, very accepting of that right. um, just with part of the training process. And, hey, look, you know, this is she is fully bought into when these things happen. It gives me opportunities in other areas to grow. Nice. And and that's been a, a blessing kind of for both of us. Um, but that kind of goes into the, the wrap up at the end. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. So let's imagine uh, that she she wasn't on board with your conclusions of the points that you would try to make in that conversation saying like, hey, this is a thing. But these are things that are relevant for us. What can we do about them? Not a hell of a lot right now. But, you know, there's just things we got to consider as we figure out what to do moving forward. Let's say that she wasn't on board with that and she was thinking, no, 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 there's got to be a reason. There's got to be a cause. Like, how do we figure that? Let's start with you again, John. How would you, how would you try to broach that conversation? Well, it's a difficult conversation to have. And I think I don't want to cop out and say it depends because it, there are many times where it depends. The skill level of the athlete, the relationship you have with the athlete, um, you know, in this particular case, she has an extensive history. So she is a little bit more willing to uh, be open minded about her own management and try to figure it out herself in regards to training around it and that sort of thing. Mm. But one of the more difficult conversations that I find is when you have an athlete who has a maybe this is the first time they're experiencing it or they're uh, I don't want to say less skilled, but less experienced athlete. And. That's that's the narrative that well something has to be physically wrong, mm -hmm. right? And not to discount the the bio portion of it because obviously we've got something going on, but 
you don't always have to have like your glute amnesia type of narrative being sown. So it's, it's having that conversation and broaching it gently and saying, Hey, look, you know, these are the things that I think we need to do. We need to be open to, you know, doing variation and limiting range of motion at times so we can maintain a training effect and get through this. Mm -hmm. Um, and you obviously get like the trust the process type stuff, uh, coming through as well, but it's important to manage those expectations in regards to their recovery, uh, not set a, a length of time on it and also get them to understand, Hey, look, this is part of the training process at times. It's going to have ups and downs. There's going to be times where you set the world on fire too. Right. Mm -hmm. But during these times, we got to find a way to be smart about our training, set good expectations, experiment a little bit and not get locked in. Cause I, I get a lot of people get locked in. It's all oh, I can only competition squat. If I mm. can't competition squat, it's not even worth me going to the gym. No, finding some kind of squat that you can tolerate is going to get us what we at least take small steps forward. And if we can't do that, then we have to figure something else out. And it's, it's having that conversation repeatedly over and over and over again. And sometimes saying the same thing in a different way or saying the same exact thing and just continuing to try to nurture that behavior. Quinn, what do you think? No, it's great. Everything that you said is, is really, really important <clears throat> to, you know, with this stuff, they'll ask because it is in the same spot and it's recreated with the same movement. And we talked about this during the barbell episode, Jared, with your mm -hmm. hamstring I mentioned it with my patellar tendons. It's there are mechanical symptoms here at play. What we don't quite understand is the whole sensitization aspect of things is how these tissues then kind of get programmed to be a little bit more on guard than they normally would. It takes it takes a little bit less to piss them off than if this had never happened before. Like the, it, it takes the most to piss tissues off before the first time if they get pissed off. <laughs> like yep. that, that first time that you sensitize it is what you needed the most volume to do it or whatever it was. So, you know, we have that conversation in the very, very beginning, you know, four years ago, something, you did something. It wasn't, it was probably not in any one moment because you'd remember that or you'd, you'd, it's more likely that you'd remember that moment. But, you know, it's like anything else. And I usually give stupid analogies like I'll walk to the wall and start banging my kneecap against it. And I say, you know, if I did this a bunch of times really hard, there's a chance that it might get a little sensitive. And if I do it less, you know, maybe it goes away. So you say it without face. face yeah, I too. do because it's so stupid. But, you know, when we <laughs> when it comes to these mechanical things, I think we can at least make these make these analogies to, to make some sense of it. But with again the 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 narrative that it's it's just it's a it's a thing you're not making it up but you know we're 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 dealing with sensitive tissues here not necessarily something that needs medical management beyond that but something happened and the more often it happened the more likely it's going to happen in the future that it it just kind of wires up that way and 
you know, ask, well, why did it keep happening? You kept, we could, it's always hindsight 2020 is what I say too. That's what sucks about this. Cause we could look at their program now, or we could look at her program now and say, Oh, look at you after that first hip injury on the left side, you spiked your workload. As soon as it stopped hurting you, you doubled your work again, you know, and then you had a recurrence and then you took a month off and then you did it again. Look at that. Well, there's your answer right there. But you know, doesn't do us much good now it's a it's kind of a learning experience now because she can train really well and smart and probably and still have a flare-up so we're kind of you know it's it's having that conversation is i think good for education but there's not a whole lot that we could do about what she was doing two or three years ago so we say now what we can try to do and how we can measure success is perhaps the flare-ups happen less frequently or when they do happen, they don't last as long or when they do happen, it takes a whole lot more work to make them happen. Like you're, you're leveled up. You're in a much, you're more, much more fit when, when it occurs. So anybody can overflow their bucket at any level. But when you do, it's now when you're back to squatting the weights that you want to squat and beyond. So that's a measure of success, too, because you might have a little backslide, but it doesn't take as much work to climb back to where you were. Um, with that, John, you know, it's happening on one side. So I just want to, like, cover, because I don't want us to sound like it's just, ah, oh, you know, it's just kumbaya and then... Uh, you know, pain is this, this psychosocial event, and, and as long as she writes in a journal and, uh, <laughs> you know. We, so it, we need it, to do that. Yeah, it, so it's happening on one side, only one side. These are the great mysteries of life. Why one side, not the other? It's, there's an asymmetry of some sort happening. I don't know what that word means other than the fact that, well, she's got symptoms only on one side. So something is different. Do you notice in her squat, have you ever noticed her, even when she's not symptomatic, loading one side or the other, or visually, I know these things are hard to observe, but does she ever say that to you? Like, I feel like I'm on my left leg or my right leg. Um, on occasion, I think every athlete will, will event, every now and then mention like in a training session, Yeah. Hey, you know, I feel like I'm just off today. Um, but with her in particular, and this is one of the reasons I brought up this case, because it's it could have gone down a very, very frustrating path. Uh, so, you know, obviously we can't judge RPE from like an outside perspective. Uh, but the speed, if she were to try to squat 265, 185 or 135, all symptomatic, the speed of the squat didn't change. There was no lateral weight shift. She didn't pull away. Uh, she wouldn't cut depth. You wouldn't see, you would see apprehension in her setup. She'd get a little nervous. Um, but the execution was still there. But then it's just, it's painful. I don't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. so, okay, cool. <laughs> Not a problem. Let's find something you can do. Um, and that, there was never anything noticeable outside of she squats so deep that 
if I so I, I don't want to I don't know how much I want to speculate here, uh, but she squats so deep that uh, a lack of tension in the bottom is is quite possible. You know what I mean, yeah. especially with those loads. But wouldn't but again, you expect that's that on something both you sides? can adapt to. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you would. Were you, were you uh, any unilateral stuff in her program? Maybe not in meat prep, but before it's like split squats or single leg deadlift variations, stuff like that. Oh yeah, um, Bulgarian split squats, front foot elevated split squats, Cossack squats. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of some sort of unilateral work on most of your squat days. Um, really to avoid situations like this or try to, um, but yeah, those are in there quite a bit. And again, no real complaints there. Uh, if anything, she does have a, a lot of difficulty with single leg deadlifts, but that's a bilateral issue for her as well. Not a unilateral issue. The difficulty is in just hard to balance. Yeah. She just has a really hard time loading okay. and staying balanced that way. But none of these are reproducing your symptoms that she gets when she's barbell squatting. Nope. No, sir. Do we talk about bar placement? I know you said front versus back squat, but high, low bar, does that make a difference at all? If, if it's on her back, it hurts. Low bar hurt more, but any, like, yeah. any any position was still painful. What about something like a safety bar? Didn't have one. Okay. That was a question I constantly tried to ask. Do you guys know, do you have a safety squat bar? No. <laughs> do you have a safety squat bar? No. Damn. <laughs> Did she ever voice any strength or capacity differences from side to side when she's doing those unilateral things? Like, oh, this side always feels weaker or gets tired faster or anything like that? No, and there wasn't any, like, noticeable, like, fatigue or shaking from one side to the other. You know, she she made those look pretty pretty even. Do those unilateral movements desensitize her at all? Like, are there are there movements that after she does them, she feels better when she's symptomatic? So front squatting, not a unilateral, but front squatting. Not only did were we able to push front squats hard uh, successfully without symptoms, but if she was flared up, we would switch to those, and she would feel better. Hmm. Well, you know, if you do a back, so a low bar back squat, if we just think about mechanics here, you're usually a little bit more arched. And obviously where I've not seen her move, but you're, you get the bar low on your back. Your torso angle is going to be a little bit more forward. You tend to kind of stick your ass back a little bit and just kind of like tilt everything forward, like your pelvis. So you're going to, you're already kind of starting in a, a certain degree of hip flexion. It's just the nature of the position. Yep. So it makes sense. Now, as I'm saying this, there are, I'm sure, many other lifters who say, no, front squats hurt my hip like hell, but low bar squats feel great. But if we're just thinking this from a mechanic standpoint, it makes sense that she's already kind of in a certain degree of hip flexion. Maybe she just hits that sensitized point a little sooner, or that just happens to be the pattern in which she's sensitive, and the front squat is different enough it's still hip flexion, yes, but it's you're changing the orientation of the pelvis and the and the femur and the acetabulum and and just force distribution in general is different, and it just doesn't hit those sensitized tissues. Whereas maybe if a high bar squat is not different enough from that from that loading pattern, so that makes some sense. I had I was thinking safety squat bar too, Jared, 
Because that would make some sense. It would be awesome if she had it. It would. Because that's probably going to feel a little better. Mm-hmm. I wanted to jump in. Did anyone at any point feel the need to take any images of her hips, or did she? Uh, she had some previously that were unremarkable. Okay. MRI? Or a, a, yes. X-ray? X-ray too? Yes. Unremarkable. No, so no cam, no uh, pincer. That's right. Nothing. Well, so okay, you know this is this is a real it's a real common case where we feel like as healthcare providers we want we need to do something we have to do something for this person, and there's not a there's not a ton that can be done externally. It doesn't seem like, but so now she's. It was September, you said. About six weeks before September, she starts to feel her symptoms. How far out from the meet was she when she starts to have the flare-up? Six weeks, month and a half. Okay, so has she had the meet? Yes. Okay. So now she's got these symptoms. Before I before I ask you then what you guys did leading up to the meet, I'm thinking about what happens now between me and an athlete who is in a similar situation and it's a conversation that ha- that need be had how important is this meet in general how important is a is your performance at this meet we you know what's long term what are we talking about here is this a qualifier is this a conversation where if you're okay pushing through I'm okay letting you push but just know that there's going to be some discomfort that's associated with this thing and and you know, we manage that as best we can. Then after the meet, we we really try to pull back and and maybe you go back to square one like you did in the beginning of the year, pin squats, tempo squats, stuff like that. So that's a conversation that may be had. Just what are we willing to sign off on? Kind of risk reward type of thing. Um, Jared, do you have any thoughts on that? Not really, other than I would have the same conversation. Um, because as you were describing that, I was trying to anticipate what, you know, maybe other clinicians might say in, in this particular situation, like, oh, why don't you do some, some hip distraction or some other you know, manual interventions? And I, you could do that. Sure. But I would, I would question why, I mean, the only thing that brings on her symptoms are these squats and we're still in a situation where she needs to train. She's a month and a half out for the, from the, the meet. And there's, let's say you, you opt for that. Okay. What if it doesn't work and you haven't addressed, you know, other training variables and say it backfires and you've lost what a week, two weeks, you're that much closer to the meat and you haven't addressed, you know, these other things, which I think you could argue quite strongly are the more important variables. So yeah, I, I would definitely have that conversation with the athlete and figure out where they're at, how much this meat means to them, what they expect whether they think or rather what they expected to do at the meet and whether they still think they can or even should try for those, that, those, that performance in the, in the competition and, you know, just try to figure out what they can live with. Cause maybe it's a situation where it doesn't mean all that much. They still want to do it, but they're not really keen to push through as much stuff as they have been, or they don't think they should. And, then you kind of figure out, okay, what, what, what can we do that you're not going to 
immensely regret one way or the other. Let's drive at that and we'll try to tweak things along the way. Then I think it just puts you in a better position to try to maneuver along with that, that athlete and just not have a crappy outcome. Yeah. Well, John, I think it's time for you to let us know. (laughs) We're we're, uh, chomping at the bit here. So I think the first thing to acknowledge in, in regards to the athlete in this case is that training in this kind of environment or in this, this atmosphere is incredibly frustrating. So the first thing, the first conversation her and I had was, all right, so this is what's going on. You have all these other factors right now, right? You have life stress. That's not making life fun. You're going to the gym. You're having frustrating sessions when we have to squat. That's not making life fun. Okay. What, first off, first and foremost, what do we want out of our training? Okay. Her response was, I want training to be fun every day I come in because I've got all this other crap going on. I need it to be something that's consistent and something I can be successful with. Cool. So we scaled back pretty hard. I went, we pushed front squats. We experimented for about a week. Um, She had a a morning that she had a lot of time and played with pin squats, uh, box squats, different bar positions, all that. And most of it elicited symptoms except except for a above parallel pin squat. So we used that as well. Those were her two squat things. We pushed front squat hard and we did a, a pin squat to tolerance every day or the two squat days. Then we had the conversation about, all right, so what do we want out of this meet? And she's always had a relatively healthy mindset. Uh, well, that was one thing we worked quite a bit on early on to lay that foundation. But she basically came forward and was like, I'm, at, at this point, my expectations on squat are low. Um, if I come in and just get one, then I'm going to be happy. And then I really, really, really want to push bench and deadlift because I, I, I feel like I can I can get I can get a couple steps forward backing off squat and really push those too hard. So that's what we decided to do. She started stacking wins session after session after session. And then there were a couple days where the pin squats would be aggravating. Right. And it would make for a crappy bench session because she'd be frustrated. So then we switched because uh, I, I do squat bench in one day, deadlift, squat bench. Right. I switched it so that bench would be first in those sessions to give her some success. Um, we had a really, really healthy conversation the, the week of the meet just about her expectations going into it. And. On game day, uh, at this point, she was still still getting some symptoms, but she was rolling on bench and deadlift. I mean, absolutely rolling. We get to the meet. It's a really good environment because I got a lot of athletes there. She's trained with them before and, and, and lifted with them before because she's one of my remote people. And uh, she's having a good time. She comes out. She hits her opener on squat. She looks at me. And I say, you want to scratch the other two? She's like, hell yeah, let's just keep on moving. Big smile on her face, right? It wasn't a PR. It wasn't even close to a PR. But she was happy because she came in and she did her thing. 
She put on a 200-pound bench for the first time on a platform. It was a huge 10-pound mm-hmm. PR for her. And then she pulled 353. Holy. And she has this really weird tendency to make her third look like a last warm-up <laughs> um, for, a, for another huge deadlift PR. And since, uh, now that we've gotten some momentum... The squats are starting to become less aggravating. We're starting to get into to better ranges of motion, um, building some confidence. Bench is absolutely flying again. And she pulled 330 for a double off a two-inch deficit earlier in the week uh, and has just been continued to be on fire. Uh, but the biggest thing that we did is, is reestablish those expectations and get her to understand that, okay, look, if if you've got all this stuff going on, if you're stressed about your job, if you're stressed about these things and you have this kind of sensitivity, then we should have some level of understanding that this thing's going to be a little angry in your training session and just modify accordingly. And that's what kind of got us through it. And now we're just continuing to build tolerance. Again, using some unilateral stuff, changing range of motion and intensities. Um, But it was the other two lifts, and and granted, you can't always do this in regards to sports, but it's the other two lifts that helped pull her out of that funk and and build some wins and stack them together. Uh, That helped out quite a bit. And we're still in the middle of this problem. This isn't something that's gone away. This is still an active problem an active case that we're still working through and still, you know, figuring out our, our way through it. Uh, and, and that's important for people to understand that this didn't clear up in two weeks, you know, it's still, it's still hanging out. We're still making modifications. She's still enjoying training and getting stronger, which is important. Those are the two big things. She trains. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to quickly comment. I think that's uh, that's a, an important thing for people to hear that that can happen. Because I think those two things get dichotomized, or you know, they seem diametrically opposed, but they don't need to be. And I know I went on a bit of a tirade last time on the Barbell po- Podcast about how I think we shoot ourselves in the foot. So I won't do that again. But I still think that, and I think that being reminded that you know, we, we can still have these symptoms and manage it. And that can still be a, a win and a big win at that is, uh, important. Um, hopefully we see more of that as uh, more of that coming from people and people get exposed to that more frequently, um, especially online. Well, and one thing I want people to understand too, because a lot of, a lot of times we have conversations like this and people think that, Oh, you know, we, we do these psycho sessions, you know, lay down and, and tell me about your issues. Yeah. No, we trained hard. We trained mm-hmm. really hard. She was setting front squat PRs weekly. This wasn't something we just kind of ran away from. She worked her butt off and and trained with high intensity, with a lot of focus. And there were times where I would have to pull my foot out of her ass every now and then to, to keep going. I mean, this it's, it's part of training. Um, and it's, it's part of that rehab performance spectrum that we talk about so much. It wasn't a kumbaya moment. We had hard conversations. We trained really hard. We went after this thing. It wasn't, 
it wasn't just a, hey, tell me about how, how you feel today. Like, yeah, we had those conversations as well, but she, we pushed. Mm-hmm. Is she only a three-day-a-week on a three-day-a-week program? She's on a four. Okay. She deadlifts twice a week. Okay. That, so, was, that didn't change? No, that didn't change. Stay, okay, kept that all the same. Kept and then the did you guys reintroduce the back squat, full range of motion, low bar? At any point during those six weeks leading up to the meet, we didn't because it all. wasn't tolerable. Yeah, we we let it ride on meet day, and uh, you know her warm ups were meh. Yeah. Um, every time we, I mean, we tried to. There are plenty of times where we were like, "Okay, how do you feel today? I feel pretty good. Let's give it a shot." Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And you just start working down, and we would use pins to just check range of motion, and then we get down to. It's a standard, and it's it's painful. And it's like, you know what? It's not worth it. It's just yeah. not. Right now, where you're at, you want these other two things. Let's just go after those. How'd you pick her opener? And did you change it as she was warming up? No, we went super light. I think uh, I think her best squat's like 319. We opened up at 185. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We. I mean, we went super conservative. Um, and we literally used it just to feel it out. And our plan was, hey, look, you know what? If this by chance feels good, then maybe we'll take a second, like in the mid twos, because she's still, she would execute at 265, right? It'd just be painful, and then she'd be frustrated. Yeah. So we could have easily gone to that, but it wasn't a goal that day anymore. So it just wasn't worth it. Scratch the other two. Let her go back in the back room and dance with my other fools, right? Because they had a block party back there pretty much the <laughs> entire day. And and have a good time and then come out and hit two real big lifts that you really want now. Which was, was really important for, for her on that day. So So what's next for her meat wise? We got another one coming up, uh, I think, in the spring. I'm still trying to see when the date for that is. Uh, and at this point, we are starting to re- reintroduce uh, full range of motion competition stand squatting. So um, she's gotten a little bit more successful with it. We're only bringing it in low volume uh, with a tempo right now, kind of like you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, kind of starting off back at square one from a couple months back. Um and it's starting to get some success and momentum built up there. Uh, but I, I think I think we've got a, a better mindset coming into it now that we've gone into the fire and come out and changed expectations. And I think she's going to be set up for some real success in the future. Anything that you're going to try different this time around? Or uh, no, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I think so. Um one of the things that I think I'm going to uh, try this time a little bit more. So I used high variation with her before, uh, and some of them she wasn't necessarily comfortable with. Uh, I'm going to ease into that this next time, um, and I'm going to keep front squats. Front squats have – people will argue the transference of front squats to a competition-style squat. However, she is a very upright, narrow stance squatter to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, And because she is successful with them and enjoys them, even though they choke her to death, um, 
that I'm going to keep those in there and push them hard because she's successful with them right now. Do you ever consider reverse bands on a, on a squat and see how that changes or if it changes how she feels in the bottom of a back squat? If the rack she squatted out of had a way to set that up, we tried and mm. it did not go well. Okay. It's a uh, Quinn. You remember the, the racks from chalk it up that are like 14 feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the racks are super, super tall. So hooking up a band is just ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. But I might buy her a safety squat bar and mail it to her. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that don't mail it. Oh my god. <laughs> just ship it. Well, just put her address in it. Ship direct. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking about this whole case. You know, we we prioritize things in the courses, in the weightlifting and powerlifting courses. We we talk about these very things. We call them tiers. But really, that's just another way of saying, what are we going to prioritize? So for a female powerlifter who can squat 320 pounds, what what is going to fill that gap of, of training? What's going to provide her with the training stimulus? If we just think about extremes, well, I like to do that to give context. So with this athlete, if we manage her hip pain by throwing in some sideline clamshells only, right by themselves don't change anything else throw in some sideline clamshells they they could give her an exercise induced analgesic effect like you do something new it could be anything do something new some band walks some glute bridges stuff like that you get up and you're like oh that kind of felt good you know it feels good when you get your glute to burn and you do a couple squats you're like oh my hip feels better you get under 315 pounds again and that that amount of stress and load is just going to supersede all of that little stuff just in that moment so again it's what do you prioritize what's going to give you the most bang for buck when you're managing if you had to pick and what what it sounds like you're saying john is that you pick the next most difficult variation that's closest to what she can't do but closest to the goal activity and then you manipulate constraints until you figure out how you can load to an intensity that will hopefully have a little bit of transference and give her a training effect. So what you had to do was you had to change one constraint is just variation. That's constraint, just a factor that we manipulate. It's a boundary condition. It's like, okay, we can't do low bar. We could do low bar, but she would just be doing like the empty bar or 135. It would be so variable that it wouldn't necessarily be productive. That's what it sounded like was going on. So yeah. let's, let's find a variation that can be consistently progressed it's the overload part it's the progression that we're we're after so okay front squats we can go full range on front squats so that's cool so that's in the only problem is you can't do a front squat in a competition and it's not exactly like the the thing that we want to do it's like okay well, what other options do we have well let's go back to the to the thing back squat but now we've got to change something there more drastically. And that we have choices. We have lots of options, really. Tempo, range of motion, uh, bar placement up, you know, low bar versus high bar. Doesn't sound like that made a difference because that would have been the first thing that I would have went to, maybe a high bar. Yeah, it just changed bar position. Yeah, but did that even matter? No, not really. Yeah, for her, it didn't sound like it mattered. So 
you got to take a little bit more extreme and say, well, we have to get out of competition, back squat, and cut depth off to a point that's above standard, but that allows us to load it somewhat similarly to the way that we would load the back squat anyway. Yep. So you're getting... You're, you're trying to fill in the gap in as many different ways as you can. We're trying, we fill in the range of motion gap with front squats. We fill in the specificity and bar placement gap with back squat, pin squats. And you just, you just progress those things and hope in the, in the interim, Mother Nature does her thing and the, the tissues desensitize and she's getting enough transference from those two things that you can, that they accumulated to something that, you know, would sum to the competition stance. Now it doesn't, didn't work out exactly like that because she had to cut things a little short at the meet, but that was already pre-planned. Um, I mean, this is a, this is just a case that's really, really common. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it's like you said, it's not an easy, this is not an easy one. No, and it could be incredibly frustrating. And, you know, when we talk about this stuff, I had even more ideas, but there's also limitations in the gym they're in or the equipment that they have. Like another viable option here that we haven't mentioned is banded or chain squats, offloading at the very bottom position and being able to overload as we go into the more tolerable ranges of motion. Now, would that have worked? I don't know. But I would have liked to have been able to have tried, right? But we didn't have, she didn't have access to that kind of equipment. Mm-hmm. So there's, in a perfect world, if, if we lived in a lab, that'd be great. Um, but sometimes you have limited constraints that you can actually work with. You just got to go what's there and, and take what, what it gives you. Yeah. This can be frustrating for the clinician too, because we think about our outcomes. Like, you know, the best way, the, the way to really pad your outcomes as a clinician is to only see like acute ankle sprains that have happened, like the first ankle sprain of somebody's <laughs> life or yeah, surgery. Yeah. You know, there's surgeries that are a little bit more predictable in their course, like a uh, total knee replacement or an ACL reconstruction, something like that. Now, obviously those things still come with their complications, but they're a little bit, you know, more predictable in, in course than something like this, where it's like we've talked about already over the course of the show, it's, there may not be an end point here. What you're what you're trying to do is make the dimmer switch a little bit. You're trying to keep the dimmer switch, you know, in the bottom third at more times than not. And so that's what it sounded like what you guys did for the majority of the time that you were working together that first six months. Or like she came to you, the dimmer switch was all the way up. And then that and then it started to come down, and then it was at a really nice maintenance point. But, you know, over the course of time, you fill that bucket with stress and, and here we go again. So I, I, the conversations are, that happens after these are really, really tough. It's so, like when the athlete asks, is this going to be something that I just that I deal with? Is this ever going to go away? You know, those, those are tough questions to answer. Yeah. Because you want to say, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Jared. Because, you, yeah, you, you want to give them a, a hopeful answer. You also don't want to know Subo them and just saying like, yeah, this is this is you forever now, because uh, you don't know that. None of us know that. We might suspect that there's a good chance they're going to have to deal with it in some capacity for a good while. 
But also, like you said in the barbell episode, it could go away and who knows why. Um, but you know, how do you, how do you tell them like, Hey, let's just, let's just try to make sure that we're okay with dealing with it here, but also not, um, I don't know, not make things worse with our words by being careless there. Yeah. Anything else on that, John? Not really. We're just still grinding now. Yeah. Is she, is she, uh, happy? Yeah. Yeah. Life, life stresses have, have come down. Her parents, their house is done. They're moved out. You know, she's still got some work stuff going on, but I think everybody always has some work stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she she's chilled out and training's been really fun lately. We've, we've really stacked a lot of momentum and, and really gotten some quality wins over the last few weeks. And that pull, I'll have to share with you guys or, or on the YouTube or something, put put her actual third attempt deadlift because it was it was a smoke show. It was so fast. Yeah, put it on. Uh, send it to me, and and I'll, we'll put it in the show notes so people can they can listen to the case and get a sense of who they're actually hearing hearing about. Yeah, she you know? she could have cleaned it. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was fast. That's awesome. That's her so, usual tendency. On thirds, yeah. Does that affect she how you choose caring. her thirds? Uh, I told her from this point forward, I'm going to choose two easy ones and then jump her up 50 kilos. Have you had a chance to test that yet? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> we'll see though. Yeah. Nice. Well, keep us updated on this because we like, we're liking this format. I think this is pretty cool and it's super useful for us too. It's, I, I learned a lot just talking through this stuff with you guys. We'll do Jared and I, or one of us or the other, or both of us eventually will come uh, to future shows with with cases. But if you guys got questions about this show, try to you know hit us up on various media. If you're a clinical athlete forum member, you, we can keep the discussion going because John's still managing this stuff. So you know I want to know how this plays out too over the next six months or so. I'm I'm interested to see how she how she does leading into the meet in the spring. Um, yeah, and I I hope that. Uh... You know, people listening to this find this helpful because John, I know you've said this before, but um, we can get you know into the weeds of these conceptual things which are relevant to clinical practice and coaching and stuff. But it can kind of seem like there's a big gap between uh, you know hearing about it and understanding those concepts and then applying it as a as a clinician. Especially, it's not just limited to students and new grads, but let's just say, especially if you're a student new grad, you're thinking, great, that makes sense. What the hell do I do with that information now? And and hopefully as we go through these cases, you know, you're able to see how, how, how we process them. And by no means are we the gold standard. We're trying to be better and, um, you know, help our the people that we work with to the best of our ability, but it just gives you another example of what that looks like in action. And then hopefully you can apply that yourselves. Great. Cool. Well, check out the, the website for, uh, videos and articles and, and the upcoming seminars and online coaching. We're starting to build that a little bit. We got some, uh, we got some clinical athlete soldiers who are coming through and, uh, trying to build them up. And, and John, thanks for sharing that case, man. That was really good. Of course. Of course. Love being able to talk about this stuff, man. Yeah. We'll do a lot more of these. I like this a lot. All right. 
Thanks, everyone. Thank you.